Allison, tell me you're a Molly without telling me you're a Molly. I think you may have just asked me a question, but I wasn't really listening because I was trying to perm my hair and get my curlers ready for my overnight. (laughs) My apologies. Richard Hudnut now introduces the first new home permanent in years. It's new quick with the first crystal pure wave lotion to give you fashion's newest natural look with half the waving work. Welcome everyone to American Girls the Podcast. This is the podcast where we're reliving the American Girls series book by book. I'm Mary. I'm still Allison. Still iconically, Allison. Allison, I can't believe we're here where you've made it to the last Molly book. Sure has been a journey. How are you? I am buried in paperwork right now. Please describe. So I've put out a FOIA request to learn more about Molly's teacher, Miss Lavanda. We would all I love have that. some questions about the cryptic deaths that are mentioned very much in passing in this book. I am filling out some APBs to learn more about Emily Bennett, who's fallen off the face of the earth, as well as uh, Ms. Gladys Guilford. Listen, Miss Kilford is, I'm seriously worried about her, and I'm very thankful that she is living through the time of the advent of Social Security because this family will certainly not be caring for her in her very golden years because she's been missing a, a very long time. She missed the bus. We learned that in this book, and she's missed in bigger ways, and no one seems to care except you and me. No, I mean... There are more people who have come and gone in this cast of characters than a typical season of The Bachelor or Bachelorette. People come into Molly's life, they disappear, we don't ever get any kind of follow-up. And her mother is just kind of like classic Ali, golly Molly, old Ali Molly. No further inquiries, no one is, is terribly worried And I'm not trying to bring a Cold War sensibility to this, but I think like some people could be investigated a little bit more. Who do you think is number one on your hit list, so to speak? You know, it's Guilford. You know, it's Guilford. I just think no one is asking questions about where this lady goes off to, what she's up to, what she believes in, you know, who she's investigating. Like, I don't I don't get it. In our not-so-ample free time, we started watching War Farm, which really turned us on to learning more about women who did very secret wartime spy activity and coordination activity (laughs) in the English countryside. And all I'm saying is, if you don't think that's Guilford cosplay, I can't help you. That's a really, that's a powerful comparison. Okay, for those who have not seen this show, (laughs) which is, I'm guessing most of you, because I don't know, you watch things that are on streaming services and have not aired, you know, you've have aired fairly recently. This show is only available on YouTube. That's right. So jump right on there. Google search War Farm. This show is so bonkers. It takes me back. (laughs) To our Pioneer Quest days. It's not quite as yep. salacious as in episode one is Pioneer Quest, which I think their pilot is truly iconic. But in this show, like there's sort of a bait and switch because you meet these two men whose names I have not learned and refuse to remember, who are basically really amped up to go to this place that looks like a living history museum, but I guess is a real farm in Hampshire mm-hmm. somewhere. And they're going to be farming according to World War II era methods, trying to experiment or recreate 
food preservation during the war and food production. Is that fair to say, Allison? Yes. The men's names are Peter and Alex, but you may wake them immediately from your consciousness. Okay, thank you. I know it's not Women's History Month yet, but when it, (laughs) you know, I just feel like I'm living like it's Women's History Month every day, so I'm not going to remember their names. Okay, then, so we meet them and we're like, okay, they're the focus of this show. Then we see the female lead whose name is Ruth. Ruth Goodman. Okay, Ruth is a is a queen. Like, I can't stress this enough. Like, Ruth is the star of the show. And yeah. they all move into this house together. Everyone else leaves. And it's like, there are outbuildings that seemingly no one has gone in since the war. Like, there's, ver- there's a lot of, like, follow-up questions here where I'm like, what's happening in this place? But they would be dead without Ruth because you see these two men who are like, Obviously, we need to irrigate these fields. Like, obviously, we're going to be doing this World War II era <laughs> method. And then they're like, ooh, quick story. Um, I didn't build this correctly, this plow. So now we don't have time to do that. So we're just going to have to, like, throw seeds in here and pray, basically. And Ruth's like, no problem. Um, I am casually covering the kitchen floor with linoleum by myself because I don't have time to sweep the floor three times a day. And you're like, Ruth, what is happening here? And then, as you pointed us to, there is a very left-field moment where suddenly she's like, as we all know, British women also took part, did their part in spycraft. And you just see her in like a garden shed. Like, I don't even know what she was supposed to be doing, but she took it really seriously and I believed her. But Ruth is so method. So, I mean, there's this kind of artifice, right? Like they're living through it, but they're not really living through it because this came out in 2012. But for Ruth, it's real in a way that I think it will never be real for Peter and Alex When Peter and Alex come across a certain kind of challenge that they can't face, they hire these two women who are like giddy to get to play farmerettes or or land army women. And they're brought in to kind of solve something. And they're not fully in it. Cut to Ruth learning how she can enter the black market. Cut to Ruth like being outraged at the rations that she has around oils and fat. Cut to Ruth doing pig consultations and knowing this super intense kind of scheme that women would have where they weren't really supposed to be raising pigs because of scarcity, but women could have like a community pig that they would feed scraps all together. And then they would get to enjoy the spoils of that pig together later. And you can see her talking to what I'm going to call a swine specialist for lack of proper terminology. And this woman is looking at her like, we've lost you. Like we lost well, you because, eight years ago. Yes. And there's a moment when she goes to a get together with the women's, what is that group called? I know it's like a longstanding tradition in the UK. It's like a women's group. They sing that song that includes the line Jam in Jerusalem, which I only know because I've watched an iconic show starring Jennifer Saunders, where it's like set in an English village and they're like this women's group. Anyway, it doesn't matter. She goes and hangs out with them. These women are all like decades older than her. They've actually been alive during World War II. And basically she out World War II's them. She's like, anyway, that's incorrect. They get together to can stuff, can fruit. And you could just see her going around them. And yes, she's like, oh, that's yes. interesting. She's like, no, that has not been boiled long enough. No, like they take the can and put it into the water bath. And she's like, obviously, these, this needs to be sealed. You just see her like supervising these poor ladies who have volunteered to play a part in this farce. But you can <laughs> tell like they're, they get that they're wearing clothes that they have not worn in decades, like in a style. And you're like watching it. And I'm watching it thinking like Ruth is like not of this world and you're sort of I'm sort of laughing at it but then at the end they all sing that song and I was like kind of tearing up and embarrassed for myself doing this but I was like this is beautiful honestly 
Ruth Goodman has set the bar. She set the bar really impossibly high. We'll never to get be there. honest. I think a kind of Molly type who lived through the war as a young girl. I don't think Molly looked back. Like Molly would not be part of these kind of commemorations. Ruth Goodman, definitely look her up. She's, uh, as you said, a UK-based historian. She does a lot of different work across historic time periods, and she does like very immersive learning and teaching, and she's brilliant. So her website is really good. It kind of gives you a little information about what she's up to. But I don't sense that our Molly would be looking back on this. I think I she's all no. like forward. You know that Bob Dylan song, Don't Look Back? That's Molly's That's like That's modus operandi. She's like, sorry, what? Like her grandchildren were like, grandma, like what was your life day like during the war? And she's like, hmm, who? What war? <laughs> no, I'm not so dealing I'm, with it. I've realized though, so this is our sixth character for our sixth book. Like we've we've completed, I know that we're not done with Molly, but we've completed the arc. Wow. You have to kind of take a moment on that because what a journey this has been. Like that was my entire childhood. Like what we've done in almost three years was like took me most of my formative years to get through. And wow, like we've really gone on this journey together. Like everything after this will be new information. Yes. And I also think with Molly, there's that kind of bigger existential question, which is, you know, she didn't change, but have we? And I think it's actually the the line or the Venn diagram of that is a lot messier than we would think because people have tweaked these books somewhat over the years, changing the illustrations, changing different things. I'm still a Molly, you know, no matter what we say here today, I feel like I'm about to testify in Pleasant Rollins court. Please do it. (laughs) <laughs> in the fifth district of Pleasant Rolland, I am still a Molly. I do still feel that very strong affinity. I think part of what has absolutely blown me away about these books is what Val withholds from you. Like you think you remember a birthday party. You don't. It did not Try again. actually happen. Didn't happen. The things you think happened did not happen. And she keeps them from you. She keeps you coming back. Like you finish this sixth book, this last piece of the arc. And it's like, what's changed? I need more. Yeah, I I hear you. In a way, it's like Valerie Tripp is sort of like a boxer in the ring who knows that they've overpowered their opponent and they could deliver that final blow to truly end things. And instead, they just give you a very mystifying look and then their opponent just like falls. That's us with this, where it's like she never, it's like, The punch she never had to throw is this book, is this whole experience. It is difficult to think about who we are in this, as you're saying, like, did we change? Did the books change? Probably a little bit of both. I still think we're Molly's after this, but I think it's complicated. I'll say that. I mean, I think sometimes you don't want to meet yourself on the page because you might only (laughs) see the bad traits. Um, But I think this book, as we both checked in off mic before we sat down to do this, affected us in deep ways. (laughs) Yes. And, you know, I think that means something. And I think, you know, I've been thinking a lot about the books and, and what they can mean as adults for adults. And I think it has a similar meaning as when we first read these books, which is that it becomes like the language for our experiences. So it's not only a statement of your personality, it's also like your zodiac sign. It, it is a language for your experience. And part of that language might say, be saying, I don't identify with like this choice. Mm-hmm. And yet I understand her knee-jerk reaction in this moment as if it was my own reaction. So, you know, I'm I'm trying to be kind to ourselves right now, Allison. I do think we're Molly's. It's been harrowing, but I think we did end on a high, (laughs) even as it was a low. I agree. And just so folks don't think this is a 12-minute episode, we'll get into it. We will. Let's do it. 
This episode is brought to you by Podcorn. Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to advertisers for native podcast sponsorships. What does that actually mean? Well, for our purposes, it means that we don't have to run ads on our show for products and services we don't believe in. We take this community really seriously, so we've in an ongoing way been trying to match with products that actually meet our mission and our values and are things that we're proud to support. So Podcorn has been a really wonderful service where we've been able to log on to their site and find a bunch of advertisers who want to work with us that we're excited to work with as well. If you're creator and you're looking for brands that you might want to work with, Podcorn is a great option. They have a marketplace mission to give podcasters transparency, creative freedom, and control. And you never give up exclusive rights to your podcast. Click the link in our show notes to learn how to sign up and to learn more about Podcorn. That's right. So just head over to podcorn.com and get started today. So Changes for Molly came out in 1988, or of course, in the last of the official canon Molly books. And this is what we get told by our publisher. So this book is set between March 1 and March 18th, 1945. Molly can't wait for dad to come home. He'll arrive in time to see her dance the part of Miss Victory in the big Red Cross show. Molly isn't worried about her tap dancing. She wants to look sophisticated so that dad will know how much she's grown up while he's been away at war. Unfortunately, Molly's hair is all wrong. When Jill finally finds a way to give Molly glorious curls, everything seems to be perfect. Then Molly gets sick. Things couldn't be worse until the doctor comes just in time. The doctor is her dad, in case you weren't. In case you needed some, you know, (laughs) understanding. Spoiler alert. (laughs) Wow. Wow, wow, wow. What did you remember from this book before you read it? Nothing accurate, I will say. <laughs> what is So your- I think the thing that really is such an interesting kind of mental exercise with the Molly books for me in particular is these moments that I hold so dear as being part of her iconography did not actually occur. So even the cover of her fully bedecked and doing the show that she dreams about right? So like our covers have her in the slicker, but later covers have her all decked out as Miss Victory doing the performance. You would think based on that summary that she is doing the performance, her dad is home, the family is reunited. Molly never actually gets to do the performance. She only does like the dress rehearsal because she gets ill from a series of calamities related to a perm. I didn't remember that. Wow. Um, I remembered only the perm for some reason, and I thought Mm -hmm. that she went through with it. I remember this because my grandmother permed her hair. And because she permed her hair once a week, it would get really fluffy, which is why I originally called her fluffy head, which I thought I kindly shortened to fluffy, which looking back maybe was not kind enough. I don't know. (laughs) But I remember vividly like going with her to her like local hair salon, a lot of other older ladies and the smell of the chemicals being so, Mm -hmm. so strong and overpowering. So that scene in the book resonated with me. But that's all I remembered. I didn't remember anything about I remember the tap. There was some tap dancing that was going to happen. That's it. That's all I brought back for this book. Yeah. So Molly is in dance class because this family seems to have endless resources for outside activities, especially during a war. So as if they're suburbanites in the 
1980s. Coincidence? I think not. Um, (laughs) In chapter one, we learn about the stakes of this performance called Hurrah for the USA. And Molly's entire family is basically supposed to be involved in this big Red Cross affiliated show where they're singing, dancing. Mom is going to make a speech. And coincidentally, they learn out they learn that uh, Mr. McIntyre might come home just in time for this. And this makes everything much more intense for Molly. She wants to look perfect. She wants to have the right hair, the right outfit. Everything needs to kind of come together. Um, And part of what's a little bit puzzling about this one in particular for me is we've moved on a really weird timeline with Molly over a longer stretch of time than is normal. Like we started earlier than we typically would have with these first few girls and we're going all the way until 1945. Um, So almost a year being covered between her birthday and this book, which I thought was kind of odd. It is kind of odd. I can I can understand why they wanted to do that, because they wanted to take us to the end of the war. Mm. So I get that that jump, but I would have started later. Um, But I think I would have started later because I think then we could feel this. I feel like very dislocated from the narrative in this, because as we learn, a lot has happened in the interim. And again, Val has only only throws two in the periphery. Like, oh, obviously, like these major events have taken place. And even later, towards the end of the book, when Jill is sort of giving Molly like a backhand compliment, about how she's matured, she basically says, you know, like, remember when everything had to go your way with Christmas and then last year you were way, like, cooler about it. (laughs) So, you know, like, there's been all these, there's, like, these passing references to how much time has elapsed, which was confusing for me. I don't know. It's just, I think they put a lot of emphasis on the reunion with dad. Yes. Timeline, which is also confusing because of the lack of reunion itself. But also, I mean, honestly, why do you think this needed to occur in the spring of 1945? It's interesting to think, is this a book that's about how the family without dad is going to fare across the war and really struggling with different privations? Or is this a story that is really privileging the most important arc is reuniting with dad? So... But it kind of wants it both ways. Like, we don't really hear about dad's experience in the war. Like, we get these letters back from him, but we don't really hear any of the things that he's, you know, been doing. And obviously, there was, like, with censorship and whatever, he couldn't get into specifics. But you would think you would hear some kind of either playful anecdotes, because, again, he, what we know about him is he has a really good sense of humor. But we don't get any of that. And we also don't get scenes of privation. We don't really get a scene other than when Miss Guilford made the bread that the girls (laughs) tried of them saying, like, oh, I would really like X, but unfortunately, you know, we have to live with Y. So dad comes back in March. We're not, like, super for sure what has led up to him being able to come home and he's able to give a little bit of information. But dad kind of triggers a crisis in Molly because he lists off all the things he's kind of missed about the family and what he's excited to see. And then he mentions um, good old Ollie Molly and Guilford's pot roast in the same sentence. And I think in the an adult perspective on this is reminding us that Guilford is an agent for some kind of state. We're not sure which state at this point. And that pot roast is code. Well, obviously, and to put that at the end, after cataloging your own children, you're hoping to slip that right right past the censors, which he apparently (laughs) did. So, 
you know, congrats to both dad and to Miss Guilford. Whether he's trying to raise a flag about her or he's in cahoots with her, we don't know. But, you know, he does get he does get by her. But it does signal, which I think is the true crisis of the book, which is an internal crisis in Molly about how she fits into the family, but mm. also her own anxieties about growing up. That's what I thought was such a relatable and really well done part of this book was the insecurities that you have when you're nine or 10. And especially if you have older siblings and you're watching them hit different touchstones of being a teenager, for example, and you're so close to it, but you're still clearly a child and you feel yes. that desire. Like, I want to be more like my sister in this case. And you want the dad. She wants, I think she, what she wanted was for the dad to say, and Molly, I've heard that you've really like matured or that you got really good at X <laughs> and I'm really excited to see that. Or you got taller and I can't wait to see how tall you've become. And instead he, as you say, puts her in the same sentence with pot roast, which is tough. Well, and he kind of talks about her still kind of like a little kid, like good old Molly, Ollie. And Molly has these two things happening at the same time, which is her friends are telling her that while she might have the dancing chops to get the solo and to be Miss Victory, um, as they say in their conversation, in a show, a lot depends on how a person looks, not just how she sings or dances, which is basically calling Molly not pretty enough to be the star. That was a really tough moment. It made me actually really sad because I think retrospectively looking back, it made me reflect on or try to have be curious about when I became aware of attractiveness as a thing that people cared about to which I would also be exposed or like I would be measured by. Because I think when you're really young, you're not really thinking in a self-reflective way, like, am I beautiful? And here you see Molly and her friends like really clocking that that's a thing that can help you. Um, That's an advantage in some capacity and measuring themselves negatively uh, along that imagined ruler, which it seems also that the only thing that they can imagine makes you beautiful is to have curly hair. You're not sure how they learned that they're supposed to have curly hair, like seemingly out of nowhere. There's not a lot of context for why in this particular dance studio, the lead would have to have curls, but they've all decided that this is the case or Molly will never land the role. And that sets into motion a series of events that I did actually find really relatable, which is like, you and your friends as children have manufactured a crisis that needs to be solved and you're kind of out trying to solve it but you don't have all of the right information and they don't really have a way to access that information because they're choosing not to ask anyone who could help them yeah and i think that that's that was such a really excellent plot device i thought on val's part was to make that the thing that moves the story forward because it is so relatable that kids are curious about adult life or things that they've been told, like, that's not for you yet. Um, But it might seem within their grasp. So they kind of, you know, collude together to experiment with it or get access to it. (laughs) And, you know, I think they thought curly hair was necessary to hold the tiara that comes with the costume. And I should just say, I find it very strange that this dance teacher keeps the costume in a suitcase that goes from (laughs) girl to girl. But the thing I thought was really weird and sort of unhygienic was like, As she's trying out different girls who are going to get to be Miss Victory, she's making them put the costume on. And it really seems like who gets it is not only the most attractive, but like who literally fits in this costume. But it's like, why do we need to try on the costume for rehearsals? Like, 
I mean, people are going to be sweating. Like, there's just, there's a lot to this that I'm confused about. (laughs) This did trigger me because I did dance briefly around Molly's age. And I don't know if you ever took dance lessons. I did not. So I signed up for Irish step dancing because it was almost like a biological imperative, I guess, in my family. But I also took tap, like shout out to Molly, probably because of Molly. But something I never counted on was one, I actually didn't want to be on stage for the recitals. And I had to, and you had to wear a dress for those. Like, and obviously that's not my brand, but mm. I didn't also pay attention to learning the routine. So when I was around eight or nine, my one and only recital, I went out on stage with the other girls and they all were doing the routine. And I just stopped at a certain point trying to fake it. And I just was like owning the fact that I did not pay attention. And I allegedly started blowing kisses to the audience and then danced off stage. (laughs) So reading this scene, I was like, wow, this is really taking me back in a dark way. I think what's interesting about both you and Molly is like your standouts in different ways. Like Molly wants to be the lead and the soloist. And in your case, it was like, I'm not an ensemble girl. No, I do my own choreography. (laughs) I do my own work. Yeah, exactly. It's like I didn't sign up to be part of this, you know, collaborative dance crew. Sorry. I think the real issue was I wanted to play basketball. So, you know, I moved on to that shortly after that air quotes performance but it's interesting I like seeing Molly's confidence when her friends are like Molly like you're gonna win you're gonna be Miss Victory and she's like yes like I should win yeah I mean this whole book is really about like change from within and change on the outside and in a lot of ways like Molly I think one of the most interesting conversations to occur between a parent and a child is in this book actually and it's when Molly and her mother are talking about anticipating her father's arrival and Molly is only thinking of this from the perspective of I I get to see my father again but I'm sure in her mother's mind it's like there's so many different dynamics like this provider my husband my you know like my lover all these other things like he's coming back like he's gonna be different like there's all this stuff and she looks at a photo of herself like younger and in this now out of date polka dot dress and she says you know I'm 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 different and and all these things have changed And Molly says to her, or there's a a line, she couldn't seem to see him. And even though there's kind of a locket that features the father, Mr. McIntyre, Molly can't get her head around a visual, not just of what he looks like in general, because they're looking at photo albums of what, who is going to return. And to think that you know, today it might be different for people who might have the option to Zoom or to FaceTime or video call. Molly literally has not seen him. She does not have a command of what this person looks like. And the stakes are different for Molly and her mother. But I thought that conversation was so beautiful because it's also kind of reassuring Molly that like, whether she looks different or not, her father will still love her. Yeah, I really liked that scene a lot. I want to read a quote from it because this was my favorite part of it. This is on page 18. And so Molly says, do you think he'll act different? I don't know, said mom. He has seen some very sad and terrible things during the war. War does change people. It doesn't just happen and then disappear, all forgiven and forgotten. War leaves scars on people and not just the kind of scars you can see. But I think dad will still be our same old dad at heart. He'll still love us. We'll all have to get used to one another another again. It may take some time. We're all older. We're all different. And I think that was a really nice 
statement on the mom's part to just kind of acknowledge and make space for the fact that one dad may be different. He will at his core maybe be the same person. And the only true thing Molly needs to know is that he will still love her. But I like that the mom is normalizing the fact that there are scars from war and some of them are emotional. Some of them are not, you know, physical disabilities that you see, but other kinds of disability or or injury or harm that comes from seeing the things and being exposed to what he was likely exposed to. So I think it was nice that she didn't just sort of whitewash the conversation or her fears and say like, no, that's not real. You know, she acknowledges how Molly's feeling and makes space for it and also makes space for the fact that, you know, they do have to get to know each other. And there are things that maybe she doesn't even know about the effect the war has had on her husband. We also get this put in a different context when Molly is talking with her friends about other service people they know. And we this is where we get these kind of like very quick passing references to the fact that Miss Campbell, love interest of book number two, Correct. that her fiance has been killed in action. And we also learn that friend Grace from the class that her father has become disabled as a result of serving in the war. Um, And Susan says, it would be terrible to have a father who couldn't walk anymore. And to which Linda replies, I'll bet Grace is just happy he's home and alive. And they actually have a pretty sophisticated conversation about, you know, risk and like pride among the families about service members. But I think this is one of the few places in the whole series where the real cost of the war is felt by them. Right. Like Miss mm-hmm. Campbell is someone they care about. Grace is someone they care about. And they've seen the very real way in which these people have been affected. Thinking about Grace's father, there's going to be significant federal investment in programs for veterans who are disabled in that way after the war. But there's also still rampant hiring discrimination. There's a very good chance that he's never able to work again. I was reading a bit about the history of workers' compensation in in a for a different reason, not because of Molly's friend, but um, and part of what came up was with the creation of workers' compensation. It also allowed companies to, in some ways, not hire disabled people because that started to mark disabled people as people who had made an error, which is completely mm. not true. But it set up this kind of system by which. There were people who, um, and that disability may have had nothing to do with work, but there was this sense that they were part of a larger system of workplace injury and that there were costs associated with that. And you can see this like rapid uptick in people with disabilities not being hired for jobs that they are perfectly suited to do. Um, And that persists up till the present. But these things that are even put in place to try to create systems where people are protected at work or get compensation when they are hurt at work. They end up hurting people, actually. It's not really to do Grace's dad. We don't know. Maybe it worked out. Mm. But he has no real workplace protection. Like, if he's discriminated against, this is 1945, he doesn't really have much recourse. He doesn't. And also thinking about, too, that both his town, state and federally, the laws that would mandate that people make adjustments to his physical space once he returns Mm. home so that he can actually navigate the town and maybe go to a job or try to get a job or just like, you know, be a person in a place. 
that doesn't come for a very long time. And I think that's hard to fathom that, you know, these folks come home from war and what they come home to is not necessarily the most supportive environment. I think sometimes we think about the New Deal era as this moment when we get all these protections and provisions like Social Security and others, and yet it's not a perfect system. And there's huge parts of the population that are not supported that absolutely should be. And I think this is part of the broader narrative about World War II experiences that we see so many narratives about fighting the war. Most World War II movies are about the war itself or about amping up for war. If you've ever seen any of the Frank Capra, Why We Fight series, which is also on YouTube, it's Um, extensive. I want to say it's like seven or eight films that were designed as propaganda by the government to get the American public to understand what the war was about and why we were fighting in it. But it ends with, you know, war comes to America and, you know, the United States going off to war and why this is happening. But there isn't a lot of follow up in terms of and now what happens when the war is over and we return to the United States. So I think that's kind of an important and and kind of sad thing to sit with is that veterans' rights is something that's an ongoing issue in our country. What did you think of their conversation about sacrifice? Like they do kind of have this notion amongst themselves of like, well, this is kind of what people signed up for. I found that a bit uncomfortable, to be honest. I didn't really like that. And they sort of do like false equivalencies like, well, Grace's dad is paralyzed, but at least he's alive. But also maybe I don't want to like speculate. I want to actually quote exactly what they say, but. It's a strange conversation, I have it's to say. A, it takes a weird place. Like, it's actually really nuanced and good. And then it goes kind of left field. Because Molly says every soldier knows he might get killed. That's why every soldier is a hero. Yes. Yeah. And then it's, yeah, but it seems to me that once they're killed, they just go to heaven where everything is fine, said Linda. It's the people left behind on Earth who love them that have a harder time. They're sad, but they have to go on with the rest of their lives. I think Miss Campbell is as much a hero as her soldier was. But she can be proud of the sacrifice she made for her country, said Susan. I think I would be more sad than proud if my dad got killed, said Molly. Me too, said Susan. Me too, said Linda. I'd sure rather be happy and have the person I love home safe and sound than be proud because he died a hero. Yeah, and Molly kind of in her typical way is like, well, it's going to end soon. (laughs) Yeah. And she kind of pushes the conversation to a different place. Um, Yeah. And then they have a conversation about, like, how do you really know when a war is over? Which, from an adult perspective, that conversation is really interesting because with what we've just been discussing about disability and and lingering effects, um, we've talked about this before because this also came up quite a bit with Addie. You know, your community might recognize your sacrifice in one specific way. Like thinking about factories, for instance, they would often put out or lots of businesses would put out some kind of symbol that a hero worked there or that there was a loss or you would have gold star mothers uh, for people who were parents of, of people who passed away during the war. But you also think about like, is that is that really is that really compensating you in an emotional way? Because in some ways, it's also like putting a big banner on your house that says like trauma lives here. Yeah, but it does. And I also wonder too, and I think a lot of people have written about this, about the short memory in communities Mm. of folks who have lived with this 
kind of trauma or experience these kind of losses and living with the trauma and the effects of it, you know, maybe you've lost your breadwinner, the source of income for your family. Maybe someone has returned home, but is dealing with disability and adjusting their life. And where does the community show up to support really like a long haul effort, something that requires not just showing up and, you know, giving someone a, putting a banner on someone's house, but like the day to day support that someone would need for a lifelong injury or, you know, with grief. And I, that's the part that I wonder about. And I think it's sort of that bait and switch that, Allison, don't roll your eyes. If you go just read the lyrics to Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA, that's what it's about. Why would I roll my eyes? I feel like sometimes I mention Bruce and you're like, oh God, here we go. But that is why that that song I think is so powerful because he's getting at like what happens when veterans in this case of Vietnam come home and people immediately like very quickly forget their sacrifice. And there's an image of someone going to apply for a job and the foreman's like, sorry, no, like I under, like, I hope you understand, but no, I can't help you. So I think like those frustrations likely add up and affect whole communities. But something else that I thought when I read that about when do you know when a war is over is for people our age, like millennials reading Mm. this, when we were nine and read this book, the idea of like there being such a thing as a clear end to a war would have made sense. And now it's like we have been at war for how many years now? Well, since 2001 into 2002, we entered into two separate engagements. Right. So from the life of even some of our listeners has been entirely taking place during American wars abroad. And the maybe the truest sign of our privilege in this country for some people is that we that has been true and it has not affected our lives or come into our perspectives or daily experiences at all. Like there's that famous saying, like we went to war and like some people went shopping or something like yeah. that. But, you know, so that kind of dissonance is possible now and has been for decades. And it, it, it's like not to get into the fog of war, but how do you know when a war ends now in the 21st century? I need to talk about a TikTok and I, I'm, okay. I'm, no, I'm, I'm like completely serious about this. So I'm popping a polar for this conversation. All right, let's so hear it. I'm, you know, perusing this morning as I do at the start and end of every day because we're to. in a pandemic, and I don't want to be disturbed Same. on on that. So there's this trend that happens in Gen Z TikTok where like someone will find footage and they make it like just slightly grainier or like colored slightly differently. And it's young people in high school from literally any other time period than now. And it can be like 2010. And so this footage was from 2001. It was students in high school in 2001. And I don't even have to look at the comments to know that the majority of them will be people who are teenagers and people in their 20s now saying they looked so much happier without social media. Wow. So first of all, I was in high school in 2001, as Same. were you. Second of all, we did have cell phones, actually. We didn't have the the level and proliferation of social media that we have now. I'm not saying this to call out this trend. I'm saying like, this is how quickly we turn around and romanticize what Mm. was actually a very complicated and chaotic period in its own way. The extent to which Americans resisted through both Occupy Wall Street and protests of the wars in um, 
Iraq and Afghanistan and the way that that was so quickly erased or forgotten. Like, yes, these people look happy because it's literally a yearbook blooper reel of people smiling at lunch. I mean, I can look happy for two seconds in a a high school shot video as well. But part of why I bring this up is like, this is not actually about what the 2001 experience is. It's about a generation that is being thrust into very deep trauma and being told that screens are the answer and they know that they're not. So they're looking back at literally any other time period and being like, they must have been happier. And we've been very critical of people in the 1990s who very much romanticized the 40s and 50s. And this still happens today. But I can look at it and I can understand if I was being forced to go to high school via computer and all of my connection was happening through this this digital system that can be very toxic, I would think 2001 was great also. 110%. You know, you sent me one of those this morning and I kind of, I didn't even look at the comments because I was afraid (laughs) for similar reasons. But, you know... I think you're absolutely spot on. And I think that's what's resonating with me so much about this book is that really the biggest theme to me is like the fantasy or the desire for Mm -hmm. reunion. And in a way, like spoiler alert, we never see Molly reunite with her dad. Like basically the book ends as as that's happening and the book ends. And in a way, it's kind of like the last scene of The Sopranos where it just goes to black and you can imagine whatever you want. Um, Or even The Age of Innocence, if you want to like, you know, more bougie reference if that's needed. <laughs> I don't um, think it is. Sopranos is very bougie. That's prestige television. Okay, Mary. my apologies. And, you know, RIP Tony Soprano. <laughs> but um, all to say, like, when something is more open-ended, you can kind of, I think it, it's purposely inviting you to map your own yes. experiences or similar emotions onto that moment. So when I was nine or 10, I who knows what I was thinking about at the end of this book. But when I was reading it, for today, I was definitely thinking about this moment that we're living in right now, like how stressful it is and how dislocated we are. And more than usual, like digital age, enough has been, enough ink has been spilled about how we're all lonelier and more dislocated than we are connected by these technologies. Like, okay, we get it. But during COVID, especially, it's so sad. Like, it's just, you know, I've lost four family members in the last year. I'm sure a lot of people listening can relate to this. And it's really, really difficult to be grieving something and to not be able to say be with loved ones who are also grieving that person in the same space and the value that that has even without words and you know so it's just it's so incredibly dark and this is like a lighter but also dark example like a thing that I just became aware of yesterday Allison not sure if you've seen this but people listening to this the Super Bowl will have happened we're taping it on this on Thursday I don't care about football at all. I just like the commercials and when Lady Gaga does the halftime show. But I got news from our listeners that Dolly Parton had filmed a commercial for the Super Bowl and that I could watch ahead of time. So, of course, I watched it immediately. It's for Squarespace. It's really dark. Like, she re-recorded 9 to 5, which is a song I love, to be 5 to 9. So in other words, you see a woman in an office job who then gets a Squarespace site so she can work a second job after she leaves her office job to basically launch her own business so she can leave the day job at which she's presumably miserable. And it's like, Dolly, no, like, do not participate in this romanization of late stage capitalism. Like, stop it. Like, do not make me nostalgic, not for like high school in 2001, but for just a time when your job was limited to nine to five so dark it's real but it's sad it is sad i 
after everything that she's done in the past year, it's like, I can't fathom why she would do this. I don't know what's going on. Like, maybe she hasn't thought about it, but then that doesn't seem right. Like, I don't, she doesn't need the money. I don't know what's going on. I am in a weird place with this where it's like, this is possibly the first time in a very long time I've disagreed with something Dolly has done. And I don't like that space. I don't like how this feels, but I'm just saying it speaks to the broader issues that we're all having now, which is like also our friend, I'm calling our friend, Anne Helen Peterson, during the insurrection tweeting, like only in America would people be asking, can I, do I still have to do my job during the insurrection? Yes. Yeah. And I think, so I don't mean to like take us back to the Molly scene. Please do. Like out of nowhere. But I think, I think part of what the power of this book does is, and this is where it's like, it's a credit to the complexity of it that we so vividly remember things that don't actually happen in these stories. Like that we have these ideas about the birthday. God knows where that puppy is. <laughs> okay. Oh my God. Allison, I forgot about that puppy until right now. Where I, is like, it? I'm like the elephant of the Molly McIntyre universe. I don't forget. Okay. You sure so, don't. Because in some ways, there's some Samantha trickery here where it's like every book we get a new Molly. Like she dances now. Okay. Like I'm not saying there weren't. Well, but it's like, that, and but, it's presented you know. as like, well, we all know Molly's known for her yeah. dancing. And it was like, I didn't Do know we? that. I'm a sort of embarrassed. I thought we were roller skating, playing with the puppy. Emily's gone. Clearly, we were never going to know. We never saw Emily leave. No. But this whole thing, too, of like, and I didn't even catch it kind of the first time around, like Molly gets really sick and she gets really sick partially because like speaking to the pandemic, she gets really sick partially because of like the shenanigans with the perm and on and on the perm that never was. And then she gets this really bad ear infection. And of course, her father is a physician. And in the final scene, Molly is left home alone until Guilford can come over. She's never coming. Hint. Um while the whole rest of the family goes to the show. And Molly feels this tremendous loneliness being home alone in bed. And I don't think this would happen in other like families or later because Molly is still only 11 and she's home alone in bed. Um, but she's so sad. She's so lonely. And there's a part that I think like resonates and it shows you that digital itself is not the problem she tries to play with her kaleidoscope she gets bored she tries she tries to play with her paper dolls she's not in it she's not in it because her brain is so overwhelmed with this idea of like thinking dad will be here wishing she was with her family and she's like she can't concentrate um this is me literally with like forensic files on in the background and doing nine other things and like zoning in and out And there's this line that's really sad where she thinks about the fact that like she's back to the braids because she's not going to get her big moment. She's not going to get this curly hair. And her like internal monologue is some dumb braids or same dumb braids. I'm the same dumb me. And then her it's so sad. Um, And she's fighting with her mom in a classic 10, 11 year old way. I am not sick. I'm just tired, which means like you're both. And when her father comes home, he takes away all of these negative feelings she's been having when he hugs her and he holds her close and he calls her perfect. And it's a very emotional scene of like these people coming back together. And the fact that like there's a line, you know, like about how like the doctor was needed and he has these two roles of like he's a physician and he's her father. 
but also the beauty that Molly gets him all to herself, which I think is a really interesting ending. It is. It's kind of like the middle child dream, saying this as a middle <laughs> child. But also, like, before I get into the ending, I feel like there is a plot point that's implicit but not made explicit. I just need to get it confirmed oh, with you real yeah. quick. So Molly can't perform as Miss Victory because she is ill. And we get this note that Miss Guilford is a half hour, going to be a half hour late because she's missed the bus. And yet what I took from that is actually like at the venue for this event, we could cut if we were doing the film to Miss Guilford holding up the suitcase saying, I'm Miss Victory. (laughs) And the dance instructor's like, huh? Okay. Okay. Like, I guess. I mean, that's where I took that because I don't actually think Allison, like, I think she has stage fright. I don't think she'd be able to actually commit. Like, she'd want to do it for out of patriotism, but she couldn't really go there. Whereas Miss Guilford's like, okay, like, if you need me to be Miss Victory, here we go. She's like, call me Ms. Victory. (laughs) I think Harper, who's eight years old and has a Goodreads account, summarized this really well. Molly got sick, so she could not go and dance. Sad face. Molly was sad sad face and you know Rachel adult or not I'm not sure kind of echoes this by saying I'm so angry and sad and I was like you know what Rachel like that's the truth I think something that's really good about this book is that it presents a moment of disappointment and it doesn't try Mm -hmm. to fix it for Molly it basically is like her mom comes in as she's about to go to this event and says this is really disappointing like you must be so frustrated and I just really respected that because I think sometimes when people are upset they think it's helping the person by having them gloss over it or offering them a comparison of something that would be worse when really sometimes (laughs) you just want to be mad sometimes you just want to feel your feelings I say this as a Leo but also like this is how I am I believe it's healthier and I really appreciated that the mom just let her be disappointed I thought that was really strong our our new favorite reviewer Katie also pointed out like there's such an evolution and a roller coaster with Molly and her friends through all of these books and the way that Molly is like ringleader and hype person and also like kind of pushes them to do different things And Katie summarizes this really well. Sometimes Molly and her friends really wind up egging each other on into ideas that they know deep down are no good. Molly's sudden relief when Jill nixes the perm scheme is palpable. But you know that if Jill hadn't walked in, Molly 100% would have gone through with it. And I think that's true. I think that's true. We have not touched on the hair issue, but I love that they all as a friend group pool their money so that Molly can have her dream of being Miss Victory, which they think hinges on her perming her hair, which is like quite a flex. As I said to you off, Mike, no one in the planet at any time in human history, I don't believe, has ever said the thing that will save this situation is one of us getting a perm. Like that statement has never been made by anyone in human history except in this book, I guess. But what I love is that you actually see this moment of like sibling respect and affection where Jill is willing to do this very kind thing of like every single night setting Mm -hmm. Molly's hair in pin curls. And I this actually sent me on a journey where I had to do some real quick medical research because it's implied in this book. (laughs) That's right, Allison. I like I went Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman for this episode. It's implied in this book that because Molly starts setting her hair, her wet hair in pin curls every night for like a week leading up to this, that that's what made her sick. 
And yes. still now I'm 34 years old. I was FaceTiming with my parents the other day and I had just taken a shower and I was going to bed and my dad, literally, both parents were literally like, Mimi, please, please dry your hair. Like you will get sick. This is not a drill. And I was like, okay, thank you. And I am like, I didn't say this because obviously, you know, I didn't want to go there, but this is something my parents believe is true. And so I kind of did some deep diving and was like, is this a thing that's true? Can you get sick from going to bed with wet hair? No, you cannot. Long story short, you might get dandruff, but you won't get sick. Isn't it also that she was out in the rain? I think that's sort of also. What I took from this, because the mom at one point is like, I knew I encouraged this wet hair foolishness. And I was like, wait a second. Let's not spread some fake medical rumors here. Although maybe they believe that in 1945. So maybe that's just like a historical detail. But Mrs. McIntyre like truly sent me to Google because I really needed to know if kind of for myself, like, should I keep doing this? I I think where Molly is also different. Like, I think some of the American girls, we leave them in very much still a very childlike place. They're not they're They're 10 or like very recently 10 because we followed Molly a little bit longer, there's a sense of Molly kind of coming into her own more as like a teenager and the conversations that she has with her older sister, who's like definitely grown, but also feels vulnerable. And like, she's had to grow too fast without having Mm. both of her parents. I think one of the most tender scenes in all of her books is page 31. They're talking and uh, Jill says, you know, that she'll help Molly with her hair. And Molly is trying to kind of emulate her sister and she's asking her all of these questions like, why does Jill just have it together? And she says, I don't mean just how to set hair. How did you learn to look so sophisticated? And what Molly, I think, is really asking is like, when am I going to snap out of it and like know how to do things like a woman or know how to be Mm. an adult? And I think something that's kind of different about me being a millennial is like, the infantilizing of our generation has also sent people in a prolonged version of this crisis. Like, when am I just going to get it? And the reality is like, there isn't really an it. And Jill feels sad that she feels older than she is. And it makes you reread the Christmas scenes, especially really differently, where it's like, they both really want the same thing. They want to enjoy the holiday and be happy. But for each of them, it means something very different. For one, it means everything staying the same. And for other, it means things changing. But you kind of have a lot more empathy for Jill by the end of this book. I definitely did. And I really admired the way that Jill um, kind of reached out and mentored Molly, like whether or not she appreciated the nature of what Molly was anxious about. I mm. think by just being available to Molly and and offering to help her about something that she felt clearly insecure about in some way and really saving her from herself with that perm situation, I think it made it so that Molly felt like, okay, I can open up to Jill in a way that I can't or I haven't to mom or anybody else, certainly not to Rick, Ricky. Excuse me. Um, But, you know, it was a really sweet moment when she says, like, you know, dad, you know, won't recognize or like I I, I won't seem like I've changed to dad. And she does. Jill's like very mournful. Like, well, I wish you'll have two more years with dad as like your like hands on dad more than I will. And that's really sad because if you think about it, too, Jill probably has more of a living memory of like the really stark periods of the depression, Mm. like to whatever degree they've affected the life of the family. And she'll likely get married and start like parenting or running her own household before she can really enjoy the largesse of 
the post-war boom, so like however or how quickly that affects their community in the same way that Molly as a teenager will likely get to kind of go around and, and play a role in that consumer culture with less responsibilities than likely Joe will have. I was flipping through a Life magazine from March 1945 to kind of see like the world of this time. And you can see the world that Jill is going to become a young woman and then probably a married woman and, you know, working woman, perhaps depending on like where her life goes. And you can already see these pressures starting to come in. There's ads that show babies sobbing that say, why isn't mom here to help me? And it's like, you know, because mom is working. There's soup ads about how they're great for children to basically feed themselves when mom can't be around. Um, There's a really good book called Not June Cleaver, which talks about like real women's experiences from 1945 to 1960. Hmm. And like Jill's going to go through it. Like Jill's going to get fed a lot of stuff from the, the media about how she ought to be glamorous. Right. And then like even flipping through a few of these life magazines, like there's like men with cigarettes, GIs on one page, lots of stuff about women's hair, lots of stuff about soup. And then, you know, a three-page spread on B-29s completely leveling Tokyo, portions of Tokyo. And it's like, this is Jill's high school years. It's a lot. In a way, it's like you can see the comparison um, to millennial or Gen Z culture where it's like so many, so much of your young years when I think people imagine that you shouldn't be exposed to traumatic things or, you know, you get to kind of be self-centered in a healthy way and focus on your own development without, you know, these things that cause you to grow up too fast or whatever. It, both generations are touched by that in different ways. And for Jill, you do wonder, like, what is her trajectory? What happens to Jill? Does she end up eventually in a consciousness raising group? Cause she's like, I've had enough <laughs> in a way that Molly won't because everything is going to seem cool to Molly at a certain point. Maybe. Molly thrives on denial. Um, I think Jill is going to read Betty for Dan. I think Jill is not going to go to a women's college. I think, sadly, she's not going to get Samantha as one of her professors. I wanted to contrast something quickly, which is like the fact that Molly gets this moment with her father and we don't see it. Right. Mm. And to kind of like draw a line of contrast between that and probably like one of the most famous photos of the end of World War II, which is coming that summer when Molly's doing like God knows what with Susan and and the crew, which is the famous photo of the people kissing in Times Square that was taken later that year. And the real woman who's in that photo, as many people now know, like did not want to be kissed. That was, Mm. you know, kind of like an attack on, on her body. But I think part of why, first of all, she worked in toy design. Coincidence? No. Wow. Wow. So this famous, um, we know it now, this famous like victory photo, she was a dental, a dental assistant who had gone to vocational school in Queens. Um, But part of what I think is like, that is so iconic, right? Like this couple kissing. I know it was all over college dorms when we were younger, like this moment of joy and relief when something ends. And then just thinking about like the way that Valerie Tripp like makes us imagine it instead, Mm. right? Instead of giving us this kind of like forced visual of father and daughter with Felicity, like she will not hold back. Like it's date with dad 24 seven. But with this, it's like a very tender moment and thinking about 
even in the 1990s, people whose parents were serving um, in the Persian Gulf, it lets you project yourself onto it instead. So I want to take us, Allison, to a bit of investigative reporting that I've done for this show. And, you know, once again, I took myself to Chronicling America. Um, first of all, this I, I will say transparently, I did go there as part of my rabbit hole about sleeping in wet hair because I needed to know if like this was a historic problem that people were worried about and what solutions they offered. Long story short, came up empty on that. Did find a really fascinating article I will post the link to uh, from 1945 about teens and hair care tips from teens. I love it. To allegedly help you as a teen to be what they called, quote, date bait, which I feel like is a (laughs) phrase that we rightfully kept in 1945. Like... Was I disturbed by that? Yes. Okay. So then I'm sitting with myself. Once I get in Chronicling America, it's hard for me to stop. Then I start thinking to myself, okay, this Miss Victory competition could not have been unique to these books. Like Val got this from somewhere and I need to know more. So I start researching Miss Victory contests and boy, did I find some really fascinating content, which I then sent Allison during our workday in a 911 emergency email saying, Allison, please find this person. One of Allison's special skills is genealogical takedowns. So if it was possible to murder someone through genealogy, like Allison would have taken many lives. But I respect this skill. So I did. I didn't even put a message. I put her name in the subject heading and I was like, Allison, take it from here. But Essentially, in 1942, the Hearst Publication Company hosted a competition called Miss Victory. And to qualify, you had to be a woman working at a war plant. So a plant or factory devoted to war production. So a bunch of states could opt in and participate. Many did. It was a national competition. It gets narrowed down to 11 finalists. And they decided to pick the winner at a competition that took place on December 7th. Oh, boy. Yeah. So, you know, what better way to commemorate the Pearl Harbor attack than to crown Miss Victory, who would be awarded a $1,000 war bond prize and, as I learned, a really killer new wardrobe. So I stumble upon this person whose name is Barbara Ann Clark of Michigan. So uh, there's a Michigan newspaper that's digitized. So there's a lot of play for Barbara Ann's I'll call candidacy. Yes. And you see who she's up against. So first we see some photos of other factory workers and it's like, well, this one bought a lot of war bonds with her pay. And then it's like, next person, this person, this person's fiance is dead. And then it's like, okay, next person, like her brother is injured. And you're like, wait a second, what kind of weird competition (laughs) is this? And then Barbara Ann gets this like really glow up profile where it's like, well, we were at a restaurant and Barbara Ann's purse just happened to fall open and her war book like just happens to fall out. And she's like, ooh, me? Like who, me? Like, oh yeah, I did collect a lot of war stamps because, you know, I do drive the other girls in my car to work every day. And like, yes, that does cause me to use a lot of my apportioned gasoline, but they've decided to pay me in war stamps. And that's so generous. And basically she's, they're like, you're so brave. And she's like, USA, like, thank you. There is a truly amazing newspaper spread layout of her photographed in all of these different um, outfits that she won as part of Crowley's, um, the department store awarded this as part of, she wins and she gets this as part of her prize. 
it is icon- like truly iconic. She's beautiful. These outfits are amazing. It looks like she's doing Catherine Hepburn cosplay, but then I had to remind myself she's a contemporary of Catherine Hepburn, and this was what was in style. <laughs> she gets a fur. I mean, it's like, it's wild. We will post this. It's truly wild. So that wasn't enough for me. I was like, great. I'm glad she won. I'm glad she got these outfits. I immediately sent Allison an email that's like, I need to know what happened to Barbara Ann. And And I've heard that you have some answers, Allison. There's a photo of her serving a look, like sitting down, tilting her head. Like she was ready for this close up. So here's the scoop. Here's the scoop on Barbara Ann. So I had some red herrings because properly her given birth name is not Barbara Ann. She was married to Ferdinand and Rosa Fox. Uh, Rosa is a twin. And she went by Rosie occasionally, which I think is foreshadowing and kind of cute. So her mom's Um, name is Rosie. Like, we could uh, not have scripted this. No. So her proper name is Rosa, but she went by Rosie in some of the records. So our dear gal here was actually born in Florida under the name Annie Elizabeth Fox. And she is one of several children. Her father actually dies when she's quite young, when she's just a little bit older than Molly. Um, She stays living in Florida and then she ends up in Michigan And much like, obviously, on a much larger scale, a lot of people were going to places like the Motor City, like Detroit or like Flint, because there were so many manufacturing opportunities Mm. um, in this time period. And so part of what we learn about her is that she marries a man named Rex Clark, and he is actually pictured with her having a meal. She gets a chance to go visit him while he is still stateside um, in Auburn, and she actually goes down and sees him. But at any rate, she gets married when she's about 21, 22 years old in Flint to this gentleman. Um, And yes, I did look through his entire service record. Thank you. Um, And then in the 1960s, they get divorced. So I was seeing records. Sometimes people would go um, and they would have to go to Nevada or they would have to go to Colorado or other states. Um, But it's sort of a happy ending because she and Rex do not stay together, but she marries a man named Daniel O'Rourke, who's just a little bit older than her. And they live out their days in Michigan. And she only died in 2009. And she was 89 years old. And something I think that is very cool is she remained employed for some time with General Motors. So Barbara Ann, um, this kind of like self-invented woman, not born Barbara Ann, but she was like Annie Elizabeth is too boring for me. She rebranded like Rick. She she (laughs) rebranded. She rebranded. I love that she lived in Detroit and that she has, you know, work with this and to kind of think of like, there is a narrative very much that many women were compelled to leave their factory jobs. And maybe it would have been bad press. Maybe she did have a period of separation, but it doesn't appear as though she had children open to being wrong. This is only one day of research, but Barbara Ann, man, she stuck it out. She stuck it out. And I like that her life story actually thwarts a lot of, as you're saying, the received notions about women's lives post-war, which you might also get from peek into the past of this book, which does heavily co-sign that all, air quotes, all women return to the home after the war to give up their jobs for the men returning. But, and obviously that's a problem to think with because it also presumes whiteness. It presumes privilege. So a lot of women didn't have the choice to return home. And, you know, in some cases were like kicked out of their jobs or their jobs disappeared to make space for men returning from war. So 
you know, I think it's not that narrative has been debunked by plenty of people before us, but it's it's worth restating. Yeah, there is also the iconic line uh, from one of our listeners named Molly, who reminded us of this. This is where we learn about women wearing pants that after the war, pants became more prominent. And we're going to talk about this in greater detail in subsequent follow-up episodes. But this peek into the past is the first time that there's a reckoning at all with both the Holocaust and the destruction wrought by the atomic bomb. So this is the first time that those things are actually mentioned. And this book, I think, has the most discussion of any of them about Nazis. Like Nazism is actually invoked in this book, in in the text, like in dialogue between Molly and friends, which is different. It is different. And they kind of do that. You know, the peek into the past has a tough job because it has to do that. Like we didn't start the fire, like huge, massive coverage of big changes in history for whatever period they're in. And this one does in a very valiant effort. But there is so much to cover and so much that we want to cover as well. But I love that malls get a shout out in this like that. Another pivot point is that there's this narrative of like, well, everyone leaves the cities after the war and goes to Mm. the newly invented suburbs. And therefore like you would only return to the city for like a huge outing, like to a department store, like you would dress up to actually go into the city when in a previous generation, it's implied you live there. And this is when like highways come in and malls come in. And so like, there's all of this infrastructure that needs to be created to make life in suburbs livable and enjoyable and that creates employment for these men coming home from war so like this is the narrative that we're getting at the end of the book which you know is both true but also more complicated than that as are most things but um, I'm really interested in the history of suburbia so I'm you know interested to see you know in future dolls that we've not covered yet that are outside of our kind of like experience with the dolls like when suburbia comes in, how it's kind of talked about on the other side, like of dolls living in the suburbs. Yeah, there's also an ending or a kind of summary that we've been building to with all of these peaks into the past where there's been kind of a heavy handed subtext about like why people shouldn't fight. And then it comes out through Molly's friend relationships or her family relationships. And there's sort of a sense in here that, you know, after the war, one of the lessons was that people and countries shouldn't fight anymore, which is why the UN was created. And I think this is part of that American myth that's really prevalent in the 1980s, especially that everything after 1945 is post-war when it's actually constant warfare. Yes. And that America's role in all of this and from a foreign policy standpoint is to sort of like be the the peacemaker or the people who Mm. like keep police the rest of the world. Essentially, also Eleanor Roosevelt like deserved a shout out there and she did not get one. If she wasn't going to get it in Samantha's book, she's not going to get it here. I know, but it's like, come on, guys. Like she considered that her greatest life achievement. So like, what are we doing I don't disagree with you. I just think like that's, you know, if someone wants to do the kind of brilliant work, we just read The Age of Phyllis, which was wonderful. If someone wants to do that with Eleanor, like a total creative reimagining through poetry, we'll buy every copy. You're already forgetting our the one woman show we attended virtually of Eleanor's life. Excuse me, Allison. 
COVID time is long, Mary. I apologize. Like, honestly, I feel like that could be one of our retirement jobs is that we both act in a one woman show of Eleanor's life. And like, we take turns where it's like, I'll do act one, night one. Like, I'll be young, (laughs) Eleanor. And then like the next night, I'm like, you know what? I'm feeling kind of like creaky. And like, I could give a convincing performance of a woman who has TB in her later years. So, okay. But Eleanor herself, she didn't write my day on an every other day schedule she she showed up every day that is difficult for me to sit with and that's (laughs) when I know that I'm more of an Anne Roosevelt Longworth but like you know we're all dealing with ourselves in these times and you know we're being kind to ourselves so I'm comfortable doing half of the one woman show but if you don't want to do that with me like I guess (laughs) we can negotiate that listen all I'm gearing up for now is I'm getting my Molly pajamas ready I'm getting the film. I'm going to call it a film. Sure. I'm getting the film ready and I'm ready for some star stripes and I'm not I'm not ready. Adventures. No, I'm not ready. Okay. I need to take some space. I need to do some dream journaling. I need to <laughs> meditate with my spirit, check in with a counselor, att- you know, like make sure my last will and testament is on file with my attorney. Like I'm taking steps before I st- I step into this film because I'm not prepared for it. And I'm also reading or rereading Shirley Temple's autobiography because I somehow feel like it's part of it and it's going to help me. So Where do you think this curl superiority came from? And the tapping, the tap dancing, the tapping, the tap dancing. I, yeah, I, (laughs) it's like, come on guys. Like, yeah, it's, it's so much. It's so intense. I'm really happy that we have further to go with Molly. We have so much more Molly conversations that we're going to have. And, you know, it's just what a time to be alive. And, and I'm not like floating the Patreon because I don't want to pressure people to join it if it's like not your journey right now. Like, I totally get that. But I am just saying that we are watching League of Their Own this month. So on Galentine's, no less. So just saying that's what I'm living for right now. Patreon is a fun space. We're very grateful for everyone who joins us there. And it's also a space where we talk about things that are kind of American Girl adjacent, but not necessarily in the world. Someone recently told us that they joined for the reason alone that we did a Jane Adams murder mystery. And I just want to say thank you. That wow, means a lot. Very cool. Wow, wow, wow. That was quite a ride. I can't <laughs> believe I blocked that out, but I'm still living with that. Yeah, it's it's such a fun space. And the Discord where we have like all these channels set up where people can chat about different things. We make new channels all the time. These channels are like popping off. Like people have a lot to say and I'm really into it. I find it really fun myself just as a user, like in these times and even outside of them. Like the kind of community that I found there personally has been really affirming, as it has with the show in general. Like people are so wonderful. Our listeners are so great so many of you just yesterday when allison had sent me an email saying duncan merch is dropping at noon fyi literally at that moment i was like dipping into my instagram because i was eating my lunch and like five different listeners also sent me that and they were like you need to know about this and i was like thank you so much i like 1201 (laughs) i was there i mean the sneakers weren't there and that's disappointing but i did get the sweatshirt so like stay tuned on that (gasps) I love I had it. too. And you know what, Allison? Maybe I'll wear it on our podcast birthday. We'll see. It's coming up. I think that's wonderful. Yeah, stay tuned for lots of exciting announcements. If people want to learn more, they can always visit our website and they can learn more about how to contact us via Instagram, via Facebook. Um, 
We are also available via email and post office box. We are at a girls pod on Twitter. We're American girls podcast on Instagram and Facebook. And a quick search of us turns up all of those things. But Mary, if there are other Duncan merch leads, where should they find you? Well, the thought of searching us on the internet is terrifying. (laughs) Um, So I won't be doing that. But if people do want to chat with me, please DM me at Mimi Mahoney on Instagram. Always love hearing from people. And on Twitter at Mary Mahoney123. Genuinely love hearing from everyone. And I think we're both just really appreciative of everyone who takes time out of their day to listen to us. It's it's really, it's nice to hear you talking back to us or with us and not just us talking to each other. Yes. Which is also nice. No offense, Allison. No, it's all good. You're my young Eleanor to my old Eleanor or little Eleanor to my big Eleanor to put it in little and big Edie terms. I think I'm middle-aged Eleanor at her power height interesting okay i'll have follow-up questions at, but i'll at I'll least either of us is follow you know what if i was i'd get a lot of play in the museum i'll say that much <laughs> so I'll, I'll just say you can follow me oh my god at, don't <laughs> at allison harrix at twitter and instagram i'll go now unfortunately i do have to resign from the podcast effective immediately <laughs> <laughs> thank you yeah Thank you.